This is the politics of everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast. So while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. This is episode two of the politics of everything. I'm Amber Danes. Today I'm in conversation with Jean Corbett, whose passion and experience in the driver training industry spans more than 15 years. Jean is a former professional driving instructor of the high-performance kind. He's widely regarded as one of Australia's leading road safety advocates with a program he created in 2004 called Total Driver, designed to reduce road accidents and save lives. Fittingly, he's here discussing the politics of road safety. Welcome, Jean. Hi, Amber. How are you today? Really good. Look, let's just get into this. So, you know, in Australia, like many countries, you know, getting your license is a rite of passage for teenagers and young adults. It's a sign of freedom and independence, finally, from your parents. The system seems to have changed a bit since I got my L&P plate some 24 years ago. What do you make of the current system and why? Well, actually, the system hasn't changed at all. They gave it a bit of a facelift, which is uh, like injecting Botox into something where it's still originally what it was, (laughs) and they called it the graduated licensing scheme. Now, in merits, it's got some great ideas, but it was all based on flawed data by an author called Christie who was commissioned to write it for the government to express their point of view, And, and it is so poor in its execution, it doesn't even stand up to peer review. So while we've got these great initiatives such as you have to practice for 12 months and get 100 hours, We've completely forgotten that practice is fine, but only if you know what you're practicing. So we don't send our kids off to the football field so they each work out how to coach each other. We go looking for the best coach we can find. We don't send them to a school thinking that they're going to be sitting in a classroom and they'll somehow work out how to coordinate themselves. We send them to the school based on reputation with the best teachers that gives the best outcome. But with this subject, we suddenly say the kids can teach themselves how to drive And all we need to do is sit down, shut up, and let them work it out, and they'll be safe. That's quite clearly not the case. There's there's an old saying, practice is fine, but first you must know what to practice. So you can spend 100 hours practicing all the wrong things, and you'll still have a very poor outcome at the end of it. And that's the problem that we've got. Sure. And so what are the statistics like? I mean, how do you know this to be the case? How do you know it's not working? Unfortunately, Australia has not only the slowest declining road toll out of all the OECD nations, which means everyone's doing a much, much better job at reducing both accidents and fatalities than what we are. But in the last two, three years, what we're seeing is we're actually increasing our accidents and fatalities far beyond what we've ever done in the past. So what this is doing essentially is showing flawed policy coming to an end. So when they first introduced this scheme, they they literally made it too hard for people to go and get their license, which meant people stopped applying for it. That meant you saw a downward trend in statistics as they they were just literally finding other things to do while they waited out their their few years before they could just go and do it without having to serve their 100 hours and and 12 months. And, And in all honesty, that 100 hours sounds great, but only in the perfect family unit do they have time. And there aren't too many of those things around. There are a huge amount of single parents. There are an incredible amount of time poor parents. 
And this added burden of 100 hours, it just doesn't fit in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my children are young, but, uh, you know, in 10 years' time, that'll be me, and I can't picture having 100 hours up my sleeve. It's actually easy to do if someone leads you through it, but no one's doing that. So what's happened is all, that, all those people have put it off for that you know, five, six-year period, 10 years in some cases. Eventually, they've all needed to get their license. So they've all come back on board around the long way. And that's why you're seeing this upward trend in accidents and fatalities that's got everybody so concerned. And Australia is one of the only countries where this is actually going on. Right. So who's doing it well? I mean, do we have any... Sweden, Germany, Austria, for example, they invest about $10,000 per person in driver education and training alone. So all the countries that are doing well have got a very strong focus on actual driver training. They teach driving. In Australia, we've got this focus on it's all about road rules. And if you don't speed, you'll be safe. And nothing could be further from the truth. And our statistics are showing that. So it's not until we actually start defining and teaching what good driving skills are that you'll create the corresponding downward trend in your statistics. That's really interesting. So what experiences do you personally have that made you so passionate about, you know, moving the needle on this? Oh, it's quite funny. When I started, I was I was a little kid that grew up in the middle of New South Wales and uh one of my great dreams when people ask what you want to do is I wanted to travel the world, teach people how to race cars and change the way we educate drivers. And uh, when everyone would pick themselves up off the floor laughing, they would all say universally, who the hell's going to pay someone like you to do something like that? <laughs> and through a series of opportunities and circumstance more than anything else, that was exactly where I wound up. I wound up working under the guise of this gentleman called Frank Gardner who uh, was Australia's leading motor racing engineer, racing driver. He worked with Sir Jack Dabham in Formula One and left that to pursue other endeavours that paid better at the time. Worked with Ford America, developing projects like the GT40 and the Mustang series and was part of a joint venture research project between NASA and the US Navy. So the wealth of knowledge and experience that this person had was astounding. And then as my experience grew, I started contracting to other brands and the highlight of my career was making it into Mercedes-Benz as part of their F1 gig in 2003. Amazing. And what I worked out was that everywhere we traveled, we were complaining about people for exactly the same reason. And it, it had nothing to do with what I thought or was led to believe it did. And the other intriguing part was we would all say universally someone needs to fix this, the manufacturers, the insurers or the government. And really, it's none of their problems. It's it's quite interesting from an industry perspective. We were depending on somebody else to feed us clients and pay for the clients. And there's, I guess there was more learning that went on. There was more experiences. But I realized what we were doing was really one piece of a very big puzzle. And that the ones that really needed this skill and the knowledge were the ones that were starting out, not the ones that were experienced. And that was why we developed the Total Driver Program. So with the program, I mean, how does it interact with what currently is happening obviously there's a you know whopping you say three thousand percent which is crazy spike in post-license accidents in recent years and five times the fatality rate for sort of older and if you like more experienced drivers surely the government can't be happy with this how how are you sort of interacting with them on this change well i guess there's a few parts to that and it's quite a long question what you just asked the first part is they actually identify the problem they call it the default and it means what happens if we don't do anything. And that's how the legislation is, is written. It's how budgets are set. So it's a very cottage-based industry. It's just been homogenous in growth. And the problem is everyone that's in there setting policy has come from that industry. And they all think they're doing it right. And they all think if we just follow the rules that people won't crash. 
And the statistics are very telling that that's just not the case. Now, if you look at it from a business background, if you designed and implemented a new program for your workplace and the the figures didn't rise by a percentage, they actually dropped through the floor by 3,000%, you would say that you failed massively in meeting the outcome of your objectives. But we're not thinking like that with this driver training thing. We're actually doing the opposite and we're blaming the end person for the result of the poor training that they've received. So that's where the industry standard basis lies. And the hardest thing we had to learn was that, you know, we never expected assistance, politically speaking, but what we didn't anticipate was outright hindrance, politically speaking. So Mm -hmm. the reality of our program moving forward is it identifies and connects with consumers who want a better outcome for their kids than traditional based driving lessons, because there's nothing that actually, actually qualifies what a driving lesson is, what value you get for it, or if it's anything other than just passing the test. Absolutely. So, I mean, guess the federal government's, you know, Keys to Drive program has $15 million in funding per annum. Well, that's $15 million per year. Right. So, like, if that's money, it's still a significant amount of money. I mean, what else could they be doing? How could they be interested? <laughs> what you do? I mean, if you, if, you were, if you were given the job today, what would you be doing? The first, first thing I would do is shut that program down. Now, The Keys to Drive program follows on from the methodology of their current graduated licensing scheme. And that means that if we just sit down, shut up, and let kids work out how to do it their own way, that they're going to be safer. Now, if that was the case, we would never be in this position, as that's how we all learned how to drive. In fact, when I first started out and I had my interview, which was a tryout session at the BMW Performance Driving Centre, I went there with the mindset that a kid from the bush was going to show these city slickers just how good driving could be done. And yeah, my ego copped a massive hammering over that first three-day program. Well, there so you the go. only thing that they've been able to work out how to do with Keys to Drive is not develop an understanding of what driver education actually is and not develop an instructor training program that was thought through and matched up with the methodology. In fact, the only thing you need to do to become a driving instructor is a four-day course in how to run a small business and you're actively told you'll learn the rest as you go. The only thing you need to be to be a driving examiner with any one of the Department of Transports is an internal course on the road rules. So they're not even qualified under a training and assessment criteria, which is a certificate for. They're not experienced within driving instruction, so they don't have the certificate for to match up with that. And they have no relevant industry experience. They're literally people that apply through the public service or they come from the front desk of a transport centre and they whack through a course on road rules and suddenly they're the assessors. So the variance in the assessment process is horrendous. So the only thing that they've achieved with Keys to Drive is to give select schools that subscribe to their methodology the ability to have free clients because they'll pay for a driving lesson per student, which is actually anti-competitive in nature. Now, that to me is a huge waste of resource. And at the end of the day, it's not making our roads and our and our people any safer. So Believe it or not, there aren't. Their only benchmark for the success of a Keys to Drive instructor is how many free lessons that they were able to do. So from a business perspective, if you couldn't create success when the government was paying your clients to attend, (laughs) you've got some serious issues. Oh, totally. I I absolutely agree as someone in small business. With your Total Driver program, it actively changes the driver behaviour from reactive to proactive and reduces post-licence accident rates of new drivers by 75%. All this from a man who used to race cars, interesting, Um, and the program has been validated by leading road safety organisations and Griffith University. When you developed this program, 
how, what were the stepping stones? How did you know how to do it? Uh, we didn't, and that was the intriguing part. I thought we did, and uh, we had this global experience of skills and, and knowledge and this methodology that what we had to do was actually teach what driving was about, so how to break it down. And the key thing that I learned from my questions about what I was doing for a living was the number one thing we taught people how to do was buy time. So the trick is our brain can't process speed. And everything it wants to do is perfect for our biological environment. The moment you put them behind the wheel of the car, you introduce speed and it's not calculating that. So everything it wants to do in response to a threat, a crisis or stress is the exact opposite of what the car needs to do. So we designed a program that was all aimed at retraining how they processed that threats and hazard information to manage this new environment. So it's like taking the operating system out of a Mac and putting it into a PC and wondering why it won't work. We rolled it out probably six or seven times where we'd roll it out, we'd trial it in the field, we'd do our own test and measures, we'd realize how much we had to learn about this environment, we'd roll it back, we'd rewrite it, we'd re-script it, we'd go through it again. Uh, once we had that right, we then had to develop an instructor training program because it's all on the caliber of the instructor as to the success of the student, like any form of education. And then we had to develop our own intranet or backend web system to be able to manage the business. Uh, so we could cope with growth on a large scale. And then we had to modernize it with phone applications and those sort of things for the in-field operations. And then we had to realize that what we were really doing was such a big task that we separated it out. So the practical is what's concentrated on the road with the skills-based training. The theoretical is based on what we do with the parents. So we support the parents with free information to teach them how to support the journey we're taking the students down on. We developed a system where we produced live reports of performance, so we had transparency and we included them within the learning process. Then we had to develop a mentoring program to keep them on the same page, so the parents are receiving a free high-end driving program as part of the learning that their kids are taking. And then we had to turn it into a commercial model so it could be independently successful, despite the fact we weren't receiving any assistance from, from government. So it was it was a massive undertaking for something that should have been quite simple in theory. It's a, yeah, it's a, once you get started, there's so much more to it. Just on the actual, you know, how you get it, get it out to people and how you deliver it. I mean, how much does it cost? If you want to, if you are, you know, a parent of a teenager or young person who's learning to drive, I mean, what, what does it cost you? How long does it go for? It's how actually, accessible is it? it's quite comparable to the industry standard. So in other words, we phase the programs over three months, which is one session per week. And it works out comparable to the cost of buying a, a normal driving lesson, but you get all that value built within the driving session. So you get more more, more bang for your buck per se, which is great. 100%. Um, I guess that leads me to, to the next area I want to explore, which, you know, what do you think are some of the best, most practical ways that Australian drivers could reduce the road toll? I mean, is it just about defensive driving, more experience, more supervision? I mean, what are the sort of elements? You've touched on the way in which our brains can't process speed. What else do you need to do? You know, there's, a, there's an old saying that the, the quickest way to upset someone is to tell them that we're not fantastic drivers or lovers because we all believe that we're both. And the, the, where that comes from is that they're the only two things that we teach ourselves how to do. Now, if you think of the cars that we learned how to drive in, they were horrible agricultural things that wanted to throw you off the road at the first sign of a bend or even touching the brakes. In fact, the Holden chief in the 60s and the 70s, he's thought on road safety was to make the cars handle so bad that it scared people into slowing down. 
And then they had a guy called Hannenberger came in who thought that was the most outrageous thing he heard, and they, he introduced radial tune suspension. Suddenly the car started to, to handle and, and feel good. So we've never actually been taught what driving is. So the first thing everyone needs to do is re-engage and find that passion, that fun of going for a drive again and connect with that. Everywhere you can go, there's so many things you can see. There's trips to take your families on. The next step is to find a good course. And, and there's lots of courses around, but the industry's failing is it doesn't understand what driving is. So a lot of courses are based on how to control loss of control, which is skids and understeer and braking and so forth. But you can't teach someone to control what they deliberately lost control of. But there are some good courses out there. So find one of those. And then each time you go for a drive, practice. Just practice looking up at that big picture. Practice anticipating what everyone else is thinking and doing. Practice looking for options in case something goes wrong. And just connect with that re-engagement process of your driving. And literally at the end of the day, what the statistics show is it takes three to five years for the brain to start naturally adapting to what it needs to do. But you can improve on that so much. And then you need a good driving technique, which is all about what they call postural stability, which is all controlled relaxation. Interesting. It's such a it's such a different way to think about just getting in your car and going somewhere. I mean, you you also have some tips, maybe for you know you were saying that the speed limits are artificially low that we set, which worse which is actually worse than no speed limits in some ways. A hundred percent. What does that really mean, and how can we sort of get better at, at, at driving on an everyday level? Well, the speed limits were set back in the 60s and the 70s with these horrible cars that we were speaking about. And then somewhere along the line, people thought it was safe. And if we increase the speed limits, then they were all going to die and uh, and go to a very bad place. That's quite simply not the case. What's happening is these low speed limits, they're artificially low, create a disengagement of the driver. And in fact, the other thing that's happening is with this over-enforcement of these very low speed limits, the driver's now not only becoming disengaged through inattention and becoming bored, they're focusing so much on the speedo that they're literally not seeing what's happening. They focus on the speedo, they turn the cruise control on so they, they don't get booked. And by the time they realize something's not right, it's too late. They're in the middle of the crash or they've dozed off and, and had a nap. In fact, fatigue-related accidents have gone up by 70% in the last few years alone. And there's plenty of data out there that shows that this over-enforcement is actually creating a bigger problem than the one that they're trying to fix. The catch is we can't change legislation overnight. It isn't. We think by slowing down, we're going to be safer and we're going to be better. But you're sort of challenging that, really. We get fatigued. We get so bored, we disengage, and we stop participating in the act of driving. That's interesting. Throughout your career, have you had any mentors or inspirational figures that you've drawn some ideas or business lessons from that you could share? Yeah. Look, I've, I've been incredibly fortunate in terms of the people I've met. In fact, when I was with Mercedes, I always knew I was in the right place when I'd walk into a room, look at the caliber of people that I was sharing it with and think, oh my God, what am I supposed to say to this lot? And I realized that was time for another step up. But out of all all the people I've met that have had positive influence, the most intriguing one was a guy called Len DeCandia. And he started off Mountain Dew Springwater long before Springwater was fashionable. And he said to me one day, if you want to know where you'll be in five years' time, look at someone who does what you've been doing for five years longer than you, and there's your map. And it's so true. So I, I live by that. Absolutely. And any lessons? that you, What have you had to learn in, in, throughout your business and career? Trust your gut. Every time we've gotten into trouble as a business was because I would second guess myself. I'd go looking externally for information or experience I felt we'd need. And nine times out of 10, that was what got us into trouble. 
So that the hardest thing I had to learn as a business was to trust your instinct. I'll give you a most recent example. We wanted to build the next generation of our, our back end. So we went searching for people from the respective fields we needed to do it. And I took them out to lunch and I was watching them meet and I was listening to them talk. And my gut was telling me I need to just get up and walk away. They're going to get me in trouble. Anyway, I decided, no, I really needed this done. We had the funds there to do it. It was integral for our next step. So I sucked it up and uh, it took three months for us to realize we're in trouble. So for us in our industry, you know, every dollar's a prisoner with what we're doing. We're not government funded, but we had to kiss goodbye to $30,000 all because I didn't trust my instinct. That's interesting. I think a lot, a lot of people can relate to that, but you never know until you've had the experience, do you? So it's always good to hear from other people that um, have, have, you know, I guess forged that path before you. You've just got to trust your instinct. You've just got to suck it up and have that confidence to know what your inner voice is saying is right. I mean, the, the hard part is that you tend to second guess it, especially in the early days out of fear, fear because you haven't been there, fear because it's a step into the unknown. But that's where that saying from Linda Candia was so right. If you want to know where you'll be in five years' time, look for someone who's done it. That's your map. So you've got to find that that inner voice, that self-confidence to have that faith that each step that you take, that's your step. It was made with your decisions, with your conviction, and you'll be fine. And if you've got that voice saying, just don't go there, do it. doesn't matter what pride you think you're losing because the ultimate price is something a lot more severe than if you didn't follow that voice. So. You've just got to learn to trust that inner voice and have confidence within. On the flip side, is there any sort of recent or future projects um, as part of Total Driver that you're working on that you can share with us about, you know, where you're headed? What's, I guess, what, what will be next in terms of you've been doing this for a while and, you know, do you have any big hairy goals that you want to share with us? Oh, look, we know the project's global. We've already had uh, a couple of parties say that when we reach some milestones, they want to take it on with global opportunities. We've had both cars and car skews say that there's nothing that exists anywhere in the world to do with what we're doing. We've had Professor Ian Glendon from Griffith University state that there are no comparable programs they could use, even use as a benchmark in research and understanding how we've, we've done this together. We've truly pioneered something unique, and we've worked out how to do it as a commercial model that didn't need government funding or support. And there's lots, lots to be proud of there. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's good. So we know our, our next steps and our next steps are to grow fairly quickly out of Australia and start to move into those other markets. But we've got our own KPIs that we need to meet to make sure that we make those steps successful. I love it. Thinking big. Let's sort of start to tie up um, the conversation with, I guess, some hot tips. You know, if you could close off by sharing a bit of a manifesto, something that's tried and true or practical steps for our listeners who are really wanting to know, okay, the politics of road safety, it's a minefield, obviously. You've shared with us some of your experiences and and tips, but, you know, what would you like to leave them with if they were going to kind of remember anything from from this podcast interview? Never stop learning. You know, at at the end of the day, we all act as our, our own handbrake, so to speak, on what we can achieve. So you can always go back, and it's not very often that you can actually go forward. So if there's an opportunity there, just grab it with both hands and run with it. In terms of the politics that we're talking about, you can't change politics, but you can use understanding where the politics is sitting to your advantage because at the end of the day, we're all funded by the consumer. If you've got a better product and you're better positioned and you deliver a better outcome, that's your vote of confidence. All you have to do is align with people that share that vision and they'll be your customers and that's how your business will grow. 
Absolutely. Well, that's that's been a fantastic little experience for me. I mean, I've learned so much in this, in this half an hour or so together. Um, thank you so much, Gene Corbett, for your time. And if anyone is interested in contacting Gene, his business is called Total Driver and we'll have some details on our show notes as well. But you've been listening to The Politics of Everything and I'm Amber Danes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amber. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespokecoms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.